Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Sunday, January 22nd. Amanda Borshaldan here with our senior analyst, Chaviv Ratigur, and Knesset correspondent, Carrie Keller-Lynn. Hello to you both. Hey, Amanda. Hey, Amanda. So glad to have you both. Carrie had a late night at the Tel Aviv protest, and we'll discuss <laughs> latest reports of rumors that the Attorney General may order Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to step down, as well as the ongoing crisis surrounding the appointment of Shas head Arie as ministers. And what is this concept of estoppel? But first, a short break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarah Check's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarah Check Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarah Check Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. And we're back. Carrie, you were at the rally rallies in Tel Aviv last night where some <laughs> 110 to 150,000 protesters gathered. Now, it wasn't raining and even opposition head Yair Lapid came out. And I see from your coverage that author David Grossman was there and gave really a rather poetic speech. Let me just quote one sentence from it. Now is the hour of darkness. Now is the moment to stand up and cry out. This land is in our souls. So give us some more highlights of the event. Or was it events? One protester too, Carrie. Well, it's funny, but even the protest leaders are sort of mimicking the opposition leaders in the Knesset, and they're unable to agree amongst themselves who is leading them. This is really a, a free-form protest that's been organized by a core team via WhatsApp groups. I spoke to a number of protest leaders about this last week. And interestingly, uh, one of the groups among the dozens, about 50 groups allied uh, on the, the larger protest last night, decided to break off and hold a second protest hosted by itself. That's the Movement for Quality Government, which um, has been a key government oversight watchdog. Uh, it led the petition that ultimately led to um, Shas leader Arya Dari being disqualified by the high court last week, really bombshell opinion from being a minister. Uh, they held their own protest in Habima. It was a bit smaller, only 10,000 people. And the real bulk of uh, protesters came out for this broad swath of, of groups represented. Um, last night, there were few Palestinian flags, but there were definitely uh, anti-occupation protesters, which has been a bit controversial because there are a number of Israelis who, while they are very much against this government's judicial reform platform, uh, are less comfortable with discussing uh, the occupation, especially from a leftward perspective. Uh, there were LGBT groups, there were doctors, there were high-tech leaders. One of the high-tech leaders gave a really, really important speech that I think really helped people connect these somewhat esoteric concepts of judicial reform to their daily lives by saying, hey, 
over the last three years, this Israeli high-tech miracle that employs 10% of our population brought in $54 billion of foreign investment. That's all going to dry up if this country does not have rule of law and a trustworthy legal system. In fact, I spoke to a founder who's involved with that um, high-tech movement yesterday who said, listen, I got a call from one of my investors and they said, is your IP in America? Okay, just checking, making sure it's in Delaware rather than in Israel. Um, so this is this is a real thing. People are spooked. There have been other funds who've instructed um, their investors not to bring Israeli companies to committee uh, over the first two quarters of this year because they want to see how a judicial reform will pan out here. And I, I think that's really important, again, just to hit home. These can sound like very esoteric concepts. First, they sound political, then they sound naughty and legal. And, and ultimately, this will affect uh, the daily lives of Israelis. And Israelis are, are finally starting to talk about how that would happen uh, for civil liberties to losing their jobs as investment dries up. I really appreciated how you brought in a parent's perspective. Obviously, everyone knows I have a lot of kids and one father raised some concerns that I thought were just really uh, heart-wrenching. Can you explain who that who that was? Yeah, he he's the father of a gay son, a gay adult son. And he said that his son is thinking about living in the United States where he's currently right now to get married because he can't legally get married in the state of Israel, although Israel will recognize his marriage retroactively. Um, and he was saying that, you know, should this country change, should these reforms happen, should protections for civil liberties not be enshrined? He understands why his son would leave. And this is a man who immigrated to Israel 50 years ago in his late teens uh, from the United States and, and loves this country and, and kind of broke his heart to say this. Um, but he was marching with a pride flag and really just upset about where he thinks the country might be heading. But would you say that the flavor of the rally was more politically based, meaning were there more politicians or former politicians speaking than the common Joe? There were absolutely no politicians speaking formally. So the Pede showed up and gave a very brief statement to the press, walked around for about 10 minutes, went right back to his car and left. Uh, Benny Gantz did something similar. He also gave a statement. Um, I ran into a number of, of MKs in the crowd, uh, but there were no politicians on the main stage. And this was a deliberate choice by protest organizers who really want to stress that this protest is against uh, the judicial reforms. It's against anti-democratic measures that they see this government uh, headed by Netanyahu is promoting. Of course, there's a political flavor because most of the protesters, as well as the people protesting or center or or left, or somehow not aligned with Netanyahu. That's absolutely a part of this, but they really, really tried to keep it uh, tied to the substance. Okay, thanks so much for that. Carrie, the media is obviously rife with rumors, and we'll call them reports, of two possible scenarios. One is that Netanyahu will fire Minister Ayyadari today in the cabinet meeting, and two is that the prime minister himself could be ordered by the Attorney General to step down for a leave of absence. So let's talk about the second scenario first. So many questions here, like on whose authority would she even do that? But to begin with, how likely is it that Netanyahu indeed would go gently into that dark night or actually be, quote unquote, fired by the Attorney General? Uh, I think going gently into that night would be almost impossible to assume from a prime minister who fought tooth and nail over five election cycles to 
regain his chair with with um, some stability behind it. I think if if uh, Attorney General Bayrav Miara does this, she will have a huge target on her back from this coalition, which has already expressed its willingness to reevaluate her appointment. Um, I think that it would be really, I think, I know it would be unprecedented for an attorney general to remove uh, a sitting prime minister from office. I think there's a reason that this has not been reported with sourced reports, but only, you know, unsourced ones by the major uh, television channels. Maybe this is more of a threat. Uh, it's unclear what would happen. But the major argument is that Netanyahu, because he is currently um, on trial for three different corruption cases, and he signed an agreement in 2020 saying that he would avoid making senior law enforcement or judicial appointments or involvement in any legislation that would touch his trial, which this judicial reform package uh, very uh, credibly, arguably will uh, touch his trial, that he should not be in the role he's currently in. I mean, we're also talking about a judicial reform package that one of its its key tenants um, is putting judicial appointments firmly in control of the government that's headed by Netanyahu. So there's no way to really see um, him as his not touching judicial reform or even appointments through this this legislation that's going to pass. Again, it would be really extraordinary if if Bayrav Miara does do this. Uh, that being said, it it is also a little bit fuzzy where Netanyahu and his closest confidant, who's leading judicial reform, the justice minister, uh, whether or not he's really holding to this agreement he made in 2020. Okay, we'll go to the short break. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We are privileged to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. And we're back. Khabib, let's turn to you now and delve into the current case of Shas head Aryeh Derry, whom we said could possibly be fired a couple of hours after we're recording this podcast. But you wrote a recent analysis explaining how, in many ways, his 1993 corruption scandal helped launch the campaign against the high court's expansive powers. Tell us a little bit why. Yeah, uh, Aryeh Derry's story, saga, really shows why people maybe like me who are not bought into the left-wing panic and also really worried about 
the right-wing reforms, are very frustrated by this debate. Arya Dari in 1993 was uh, going to be indicted in the summer of 1993. He was just ahead of being indicted for some very serious crimes, including bribery as interior minister, all of them you know, related to corruption in, in his various government positions. And he would then be eventually actually go to jail in 1999 for those uh, crimes. Uh, and back in 1993, uh, Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister who had just uh, formed a coalition and had just launched the Oslo peace process, wanted Arya Derry in his coalition. He wanted Shas in his coalition, and he'd obtained Arya Derry's agreement in writing, which was publicized by the government, that he would resign when an indictment was filed with the court. An indictment was sort of unofficially semi-filed with the Knesset before that in uh, in the summer of 1993 uh, as part of the prosecution's process for rescinding uh, parliamentary immunity from Arya Deri as a member of Knesset. And at that moment, Israel's attorney general, a man by the name of Yosef Harish, demanded from Rabin, even though he knew there was this agreement with between Rabin and Deri that when it, hit, when it reaches the court, when he's officially indicted, then Deri will resign, Kharish demanded that it happen immediately. And it, this was uh, a case that came before, this demand drew an appeal against Rabin uh, to the High Court of Justice. And in 1993, in September of 1993, the High Court of Justice issued a ruling ordering Rabin to fire Derry immediately. An incredibly close parallel to what just happened last Wednesday. The problem was that it wasn't the same situation as last Wednesday, which is to say, Arya Derry, the question wasn't whether uh, someone can sit as an indicted or in this, in the case of 2023, a convicted corrupt politician sit in, in the cabinet, but in fact, whether slight delay by the prime minister in firing him was something that couldn't possibly be allowed and was terribly unreasonable. Written law was with Rabin. Rabin didn't have to fire him by any law, but it was ruled by the court and by the attorney general extremely unreasonable, and therefore he was ordered to do so. In the process, Rabin wanted to present his argument before the court. The attorney general wouldn't let him, and the court, especially the opinion of Justice Aaron Barak, who would become chief justice, uh, was that only the attorney general could represent the government, even when the attorney general and the government disagree, and then the attorney general doesn't have to present the government's view, but his his own view only. And so the government actually doesn't get, if it disagrees with its own with its own attorney general, doesn't get representation before the court. A lot of the very, very strange elements of Israel's judicial and legal system, the things that conservatives have been criticizing for 30 years, the lack of proper representation for the government, the ability to invoke judicial tests like reasonableness, not to say that the prime minister must obey the law. No one disagreed that the prime minister was obeying the law in 1993. But to say that the prime minister can't do something that is politically or policy-wise not reasonable by the judgment of a judge, right? The the rulings of Shamgar, the chief justice, and of Barak, uh, five member, uh, five justice ruling, actually said that Rabin had taken care to judge all the different questions: the legal question, the public trust in institutions question, the his own political questions. The the decision even says that maintaining his coalition, which is the reason Rabin fought tooth and nail to hold on to Derry until the firing moment that he'd agreed with Derry on. Holding his coalition together was a legitimate consideration, the, the high court's ruling said. But Rabin had weighed all these considerations and reached the wrong conclusion about which is most important right now. 
that decision had massive consequences because he had to fire Derry early. For Derry's perspective, from Shas's perspective, their agreement had been broken, not by Rabin, by the court. And Shas quit the coalition. Rabin's 62C coalition dropped to 56. He was dependent on a handful of outside votes from Arab majority parties because of Oslo. He then would bring in three more votes of... Um, of a right-wing party called Yehud, but that broke away from right-wing Tzomet, and he would always be this kind of minority coalition. Oslo, in the end, would pass in the Knesset in 1995, but the Jewish votes would be a minority, which obviously doesn't matter in terms of legislation, but it does matter uh, symbolically for the future. That's something that the right-wing would hold over Oslo for many, many years as a critique of Oslo. Um, and, and so there were tremendous historical consequences of this massive judicial overreach. And now that brings us to today. The argument today, 30 years later, is this dairy has now been convicted several times of corruption, most recently uh, last year. Um, and now the question became, um, you know, is it okay? Uh, several NGOs appealed to the high court and said, is it okay that Arya Derry uh, now sit in the cabinet? The court issued a ruling on Wednesday that said it is not okay and he must be fired immediately. But what's fascinating is not the liberal justices once again appealing to reasonableness and all the old tests. What's fascinating is that there are now several conservative judges uh, on the court uh, Justices Wilner and Mintz and and Stein and a few others Solberg, but he wasn't in specifically writing involved in this opinion. But uh, those conservative justices all explain that in fact this has nothing to do with that old judicial overreach. This is about something else. Last year, when he was before, when Derry stood before the Jerusalem Magistrates Court and and faced a sentencing, he said, look, I promise I'm not returning to politics. So you don't have to add moral turpitude to my sentence in order to push me out of politics. The court accepted that and gave him a sentence and did not add moral turpitude. And then Derry immediately returned to politics. And the High Court of Justice, the conservative justices said, you have to keep promises you make to lower courts. And that, on, that, on those grounds, he is pushed out. Um, Yariv Levine's reforms today were launched, the arguments against them were launched back then on overreach, on reasonableness, on, on the attorney general's massive powers, on the fact that none of this is written in any law. On those things, the conservatives have a case and liberals are not def are not arguing that case. They're avoiding that case because they probably know that they're on the weaker side of it. But with Arya Derry, you know, there's an old saying, bad cases make bad laws. With Arya Derry, that's not what's happening. Arya Derry should not sit in a cabinet only because he promised the court last year that he won't sit in the cabinet. On top of all the other questions that we could ask between liberals and conservatives, there's nothing, there's no judicial overreach in saying this guy who promised a court he won't return to politics should not be now allowed to return to politics. And so we're going to now have a massive political fight over Arya Derry, the right, which has a good argument on judicial reform, not but is going to pretend like it's about judicial reform when in fact it's about protecting Arya Derry from his own crimes and his own promises to a previous court. Uh, and, uh, and and so we're going to have this uh, very political moment that's not in fact going to be about the substance of the judicial reform. And that, I think, also calls into question the judicial reform itself, because it weakens the Supreme Court to such an extent that it would give the government the right to put Arya Derry back in despite his theft, despite his corruption, despite his lies. And that's be that goes far beyond the corrective that might actually be needed to as a response to the judicial overreach of 30 years ago. And so what you have is a 30-year saga around Arya Derry's corruption that really kind of frames in a fascinating way, I think, um, 
the whole question of judicial reform that's now that's now, you know, boiling to the surface and taking over our public debate. Okay, Khabib, you definitely explained the last item on my list at the beginning of the program, estoppel. Right. Okay. Yofi, all right. Thank you, Carrie and Khabib, for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.